I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to episode 10 of Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. In this episode, we talk to former BMG and Sony Records Vice President, and now founding partner at Strategic Partnership Solutions, Mervyn Lynn. Here's what Mervyn had to say when I asked him why he chose the music industry. I pretty much knew from when I was at school that I wanted to be in the business of music. I'm not quite sure it was at record companies, but it was in the business of music. And I'm kind of one of those anorex that used to buy albums and check who produced it and who featured on it. And I thought, oh, maybe one day I'd be a producer and I could work with all these people. So when I left school, it was clear that I wanted to be some way involved in that process but there was nothing available to 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 me i um went into the dj um pretty much because i love music and i love putting a smile on people's faces by playing music there was a particular skill and there was a point where you may not have been in the music business because something something else was in your life that was very very important and that you were exceptionally good at right oh yeah i mean i i, I loved football I was absolutely fixated on football. I played football four or five times a week. Um, but I was small. I was little and um, played at a very, very good level, club level. And um, you know, my father used to say, you know, you can't come home with another, you know, you've hurt your knee or you've done this or you've done that. And um, he said, you need to do something else. And and a rage grew inside me, and I thought, right, okay, you want you, you want to you know restrict me to doing that, so I took up karate instead, and I fought, you know, and I fought, and I trained myself and I conditioned myself. Again, it got to a point where I was fighting at a very good level, and the people in my club and around me who really really wanted to be you know full internationals and things like that were training again four or five times every week. But at the back of my mind, I thought. Actually, my avenue is music. This is all amazing. I love football. You know, I love karate, but music is going to be my 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 destination at some point. So looking back, it may look like it was a difficult choice, but really it wasn't. When Mervyn says that you played at a very good level, you played at more than a very good level, Mervyn. Yeah, I played for Leighton Orient and I played for Tottenham as a schoolboy. It was a good level, but, you know, I never wanted to be a footballer. Yeah, and I've played alongside Mervyn. You know, he's going to love me saying this. He he was very, very good. When you're growing up and you have this love of music, you're studying the back of album sleeves. I'm always interested in the kind of artists that you're listening to and what influences you were drawing on around you musically. In the early days, um, because I was the youngest of four brothers, my oldest brother was a dancer. He was a very, 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 very good dancer. He danced to things like Grover Washington Jr. and... Herbie Hancock and that kind of stuff. My second eldest brother was a little bit more left field. He was into like Jimmy Ponder and the Heath brothers and that kind of stuff. And uh, so I was kind of drawn into that. But of course, on the commercial side, listening to Greg or Robbie or Jeff or any of those guys, hearing the kind of music that they were playing, you know, I guess it was more jazz influence, um, but um, it was kind of, I guess we call it jazz funk now, but it was um, so R&B and jazz funk really. Once you've left school and you've decided that you want to have a career in the music business, what were the first steps you decided you were going to take to, to make that happen? The first thing I had to do was to um, was to finish my sitting deals because 
I'd, I'd made a, a pledge to my dad that I would I would um, learn a trade because um, he was like convinced you you learn a trade you will never be without a job and I said but this is not what I want to do and it was in engineering and I must have been the cleanest engineer the world has ever seen <laughs> I'd touch something and I'd want to wash my hands and saw fever everywhere but I was aware when I got on the train you know to come home um, from work I absolutely reeked of that's that oily metal smell. So I hated engineering, but I'd made a pledge to my father. So the day I got my city and gills, I got my city and gills in my left hand and I resigned with my right hand. And uh, I, I went home and I said to my dad, there you go, my city and gills. Now I'm going to do what I want to do. And he said, what is it you want to do? And I said, I want to be in the business of music. And he said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, I'm not entirely sure right now, but I'm going to, I'm going to try. At the time I was, quite a fairly successful local DJ. So it wasn't about the money. It certainly wasn't about the money because in tool making, I think when I first started, it was about £24 a week in a, in a little brown little paper bag. It was yeah. disgusting. Um, but um, yeah, so I, 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 I resigned. I was looking for a job. Um, I found a job in a local record store because I was a DJ at one of the biggest clubs in the area. So I knew what the kids would buy. So because I was playing what they would buy. So I ended up kind of, you know, um, meeting Tony Monson and buying imports into the, into the store and the sales were increasing. And then they gave me another store in up in Barnet in your area. Um, and again, those sales increased. And, uh, and then out of the blue, I think Tommy left Blues and Soul to go to, to London. Yeah, that, that's Pete Tong, by the way. Yeah, and um, um, and I got a call from Blues and Soul saying, "Did I want to come and work there?" And I said, "Wow, yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent." And and that was my first step. I mean, Blues and Soul was uh, the number one publication for black music at the time. It had a uh, had a very rich history. Had also always supported black music, both from the UK and the US. Did you ever feel that journalism was something that you wanted to pursue? Not really. It was it was fun. It it was fun. There was certainly uh, opportunities to to kind of get um, a broad perspective of everything. But no, um, it was it was just a, a stepping stone to, to somewhere else. And it was, uh, you know, and as you say, Blues and Soul was the hub. It was the, it was the centrepiece of the business, uh, of the black music business anyway. I was honoured to, to go there and, you know, and I met, you know, uh, Webster and uh, Mark Webster, who's now on, on radio. And we had, we were kind of like terrible twins. We were we were doing blues and soul club nights all over the place. I think I think we we managed to do a blues and soul club nights in association with the Last Resort, and we had Mark and I DJing, and Jonathan Ross and Alan Mark h- handed out flyers for us while we were DJing. It was it was quite surreal. <laughs> There's a little bit of background because obviously everybody knows Jonathan Ross now as a major TV personality, but. You know, you and I will have crossed paths with him back in the day. And Alan Mark, who runs a very successful TV production company that makes things like The Detectorists and other great comedy shows. But they were the researchers on what was the first black British TV program, Soul Train. So, and, yeah, Soul Train. And, and were, you know, were instrumental in making sure black music from both the UK and the US was supported on Channel 4 on a fine night. They were big around that time for, for all of us. It was a thriving time for the business, you know, certainly for black music business. You know, there was there was artists being, British artists as well, being extremely successful in the commercial world. And, and, and you had 
you know, shows. I mean, that was prime time um, Channel Four. I think seven o'clock on a on a Friday night was Soul Train. It was amazing. You know, you'd never get that now. You get it about two in the morning. <laughs> was that the time when you know Blues Soul, where you thought, yeah, this is a business I really want to be a part of. But not only that, I really want to be a part of, but I can be a part of. I can see an opening for me. No, I remember two two reasons. Two reasons. The first reason was meeting you, and the second reason was meeting Fred Dove. And I and I looked at these two black guys who were swanning around Clubland like they, it was no tomorrow, you know, carrying you know the hottest records, bringing artists everywhere. And I, I remember saying to Fred one time, I said, Fred, one day I'm going to take your job like that. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, you know, obviously looking from the outside in, I kind of thought. I want to be him. I remember him going to Caster and bringing George Benson down. And it's kind of like, my goodness, you know, that's the job I wanted. How long were you at Blues and Soul for? How long did it take you to get your break into a record company? I was at Blues and Soul for about three years, I think. Yeah, just under three years. And uh, I remember I got a call one time from uh, the head of promotions at uh, at Virgin and said, would you be interested to come and work for Virgin heading up the black music? And I kind of put my hand on the phone thinking, oh, my God. And I said, uh, yeah, I'd be interested like this. And uh, <laughs> anyway, it was a, it was a face accompli. They, they, you know, they they employed me. I don't think I ever told Chris Griffin this, but I remember going there and they asked him, asking me if I, if I drove. And I said, um, I've got my driving test soon, but I haven't, you know, I haven't got my license yet. And I, uh, they said, okay, that's no problem. Da, 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 da. And I was there for about three months. And I said, when is your when is your driving test? And I thought, I thought, oh my goodness, I ended up taking a day off and and said I had my driving test. And obviously I hadn't even had a provisional license. So I quickly filled out my provisional license, sent it off, took a day off and um, and said um, that I'd failed. And I said, but it's not a problem because I've, I've applied uh, for a retest and it's coming soon, which was my test. And I ended up taking a, a week's holiday. I took a crash course, like, Two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, two hours in the morning, and on the on the fourth day you took your test, and I managed to pass my test, and I got my car, my first ever car, the following week, at uh, which was a Ford XR2, a white one, and uh, uh, and I think I had the car maybe two days, and on the third day Erskine Thompson said to me, "Oh, we've got to take Maxi Priest up to Manchester, and you're taking him in the car." And I think, oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, Maxi smoked like a trooper, and for a, for a new driver, when I say smoke, I'm not talking about that kind of smoke. I had to have the window open just to keep saying, and that these massive lorries were going by me on the M1, and the car was like like swaying left, right, and centre. It wasn't until I saw Maxi, uh, I think four or five years ago, I said, Maxi, I just want to let you know that remember that time we went up to Manchester? I said I nearly killed us both. <laughs> And I explained to him, I'd only been driving a week. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so I went to Virgin. It was amazing to be actually inside a record company and, you know, trying to make a difference, really. What did you learn from your time at Virgin? I guess networking, I think, was the most important thing. You know, it is about um, the power of influence and you only get influenced by being liked and respected. So... Um, you know, I made it my business to be liked and respected. You know, I never disrespected anybody. I may not always agree with them, but I would disagree with them in a in a in a measured manner. Um, so I guess I guess learning to deal with people was um, 
was the most important lesson I learned. They were fun times. Post your time at Virgin, you then went on to work for one of the most, well, at the time, the most iconic labels out of New York. I mean, it'd be great to hear about that. Funny enough, at Virgin, I was working with them anyway, because we had Mantrolics and Tila Rock, uh, which were sleeping bag artists that, uh, that, that, that we worked. And that's how I met the guys, you know, Ron and Will and Juggy. Then one day they called me and said, look, we're setting up an office in, in Europe and we want you to come and run it. You know, we've got some of our artists like licensed there. Joyce Sims was licensed to London and uh, EPMD were licensed to Chrysalis. Uh, but we wanted to kind of bring it all back home. And would you come and run it? And I said, hell yeah. Uh, yeah we set up an office in Fulham. I brought in people like Jamie Topham to come and work with me. Uh, it was a small kind of very... Uh, uh, bijou operation but very influential because the music was amazing um, and it meant that I could go to New York virtually every four or five weeks. Did you enjoy the responsibility of actually having to run a label and be responsible for all the things that come with that? Yeah I've always enjoyed the responsibility. One of the things I, 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 I loathe I guess is looking after people that are not adults. You know um, I, 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 I like to be able to manage people who have respect for each other. I guess the whole HR side of managing people is the least attractive. Being creative with a bunch of people, you know, and coming up with ideas to solve a situation is an amazing, amazing exercise. But, you know, because A doesn't talk to B anymore, it's, it's kind of like, really? You know, <laughs> this is a place of work. You don't really need to be dealing with like schoolyard things. I think those those are the things that I loathe the most. But and it was completely outweighed by the, the creative process of a bunch of people getting into a room to decide how they were going to you know, plan an attack. The Sleeping Bag label was clearly a great moment in time in the UK with some incredible artists, but came to an end. And then you move from there to another iconic label. Sleeping Bag came to an end very abruptly, like most of the, the small independents at the time. There was a, a massive crash in the music business in America. There was a lot of, how you call it, one-stops. These were warehouse bulk buyers that would buy product from small independents as well as from the majors, and they would ship it on to the Walmarts or whatever else. Now, they had, a, a I guess, a, um, a cash flow problem, and they decided to keep their associations and their allegiances with the majors and to pay the independents last. Now, the problem with doing that is that the independents are the ones that probably need the money the most. And as a consequence, they 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 pretty much all crash. You know, Def Jam was bought by Ireland, you know, Profile, I don't know where, but, but a lot of the small labels just went bust or were swallowed up by major labels. And Sleeping Bag was one of those casualties. So um, it, it was a very, very painful process to have, you know, staff in the UK and not being able to pay them, I think. I think towards the end, I was paying them on my credit card, you know, just to make sure that I didn't, you know, let them down. But it, it, did, it didn't last long and, and the company closed down. And I think I was, I was unemployed for about a month. In that month, me and a friend of mine, Kamel Hines, made a record. Uh, we did a cover record. And fortunately, I got a job uh, as um, uh, head of marketing for Motown before that record ever came out. So no one will ever hear it. <laughs> I now need to go and hunt that record down <laughs> or call Camille and find out what it is because I had no idea that you actually made a record. First of all, I wasn't singing, so <laughs> you're rest assured. 
It doesn't matter. There are a number of people, you now know, they're going to listen to this and they'll be ringing Kamal and kind of going, they need to hear what you two did together in the studio. So you, you better hope he's destroyed that tape. I'm hoping. Tell us about Motown because I remember the time when you went there and I remember thinking that, yeah, clearly like all black music fans, it was a job that we would have all loved to have done. So how did it feel walking in and working, you know, for that most holy of labels? The Motown situation happened when uh, I think the deal with Motown and B&G was coming to an end. Uh, I think there was maybe six months left on, and Nicky Denaro, who was heading marketing at, at, at Motown, had left. And I think the BMG preferential objective was to not replace that person. And, um, but Motown kicked up a storm saying, you know, it's in their agreement that, you know, that there would be a head of marketing, da, 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 da. And fortunately, the person recruiting was a guy called Roger Seaman, who I had worked with years and years ago. He was head of sales at RCA when I was managing a record shop. So he was familiar with me back in the day and I had followed my career and what I'd done up up until that moment. And so I I got the job as head of marketing, but I was only there a very, very short time at BMG. I think there was maybe one record, which is the Stevie Wonder record, Fun Day, we put out. And then and then the deal moved from BMG to, you know, what is now Universal, but was back then Polygram. And I was made uh, general manager of Motown International, responsible for marketing and promotion in all the territories outside of the US, which was a major task. And I was working for Gerald Busby. And I remember listening to Gerald Busby and thinking, and that's exactly how I felt. And Gerald made a very, very um, passionate a story once when he said that he walked into the lobby of, you know, Motown for the very first time as president. And he said, this wasn't a job. This is not a job. This is, this is a curator of black history. You know, when you look upon the walls and you see Stevie Wonder and Smokey Robinson and, and the Temptations, you know, you realise that actually you're the custodian of something that will last forever. It'd be really nice if you can expand on the role that you played there, some of your day-to-day duties for those that may not have an understanding of what that encompasses. My role in life, uh, in, the, in my music business life, has always been marketing, you know, and I see marketing as a as a problem-solving area. You know, you're given a task, a piece of product to say, okay, we need to get this piece of product to the biggest available market. Uh, to buy this piece of product on a specific date to make sure that it charts. So that's the task. So in my Motown role, I remember my very, very first task was to break Boyz II Men. Now, Boyz II Men had been a humongous act in the US, and there was a lot of pressure on Polygram uh, to break this these, these artists around the world. But it was difficult because it was very US-centric, the way they look, the sound, and et cetera, et cetera. And so my task was to kind of look at this group and say, okay, how can we tailor make this group for an international audience? And the first thing I did was to say, actually, we need a new photo shoot. If you look at the, the international album of Boys to Men compared to the to the, the US version, you see they're very, very different covers. On the on the international version, they're they're in red blazers, kind of chest upwards. And on the American one, they're kind of in the distance somewhere. You can't even see that there are four guys. So um, the idea was to to make more an identity relationship between the audience and themselves by, you know, creating these, you know, these characters. So we did a new photo shoot. 
The first record was, again, very American-centric. So I think I got Steve Gervier to to remix it, to make it a little bit more acceptable to a, to a UK and international audience. And all of a sudden it was a hit. It was a big hit. And the momentum carried it in other territories. Fortunately, the follow-up record, End of the Road, was like one of the biggest records ever made. And we were off and running. You know, it was, I think it was number one in about 16 countries. And we sold millions and millions of records. What happened after your time at Motown? Because clearly you were unbelievably successful there. And from there, you go to Arista. You go there as head of A&R for the Black Music Repertoire. What prompted that move? So it, around the time, Polygram were kind of swallowing up as many labels as it, as it could. And it had the opportunity at the end of the license agreement to purchase Motown. And, and in purchasing Motown, it was to... Um, then figure out exactly what Motown would be in this new polygram empire. And my belief was that it was to utilise it as a, a catalogue source as opposed to breaking frontline artists. Um, and that was not my role. I wasn't a you know a, a catalogue person. I wanted to work frontline. And as a consequence, the job of overseeing the merge Motown and A&M went to the A&M guy which was, you know, foreseeable. I could see it because that wasn't me. And um, and I had a call from John Preston at BMG saying, would you come back? And I said, hell yeah, I'd come back. And uh, I went back to BMG and I met Diana Graham and I kind of created this role of um, you know, overseeing these three emerging black labels from America, you know, LaFace, Bad Boy and Rowdy Records, Dallas's label, Puffy's label and LA and Babyface's label. And some of the frontline artists that came through that, and it was the best of times. Let's discuss in a bit more detail about that time, because an amazing roster. You had some really interesting members of your own team inside the building as well that have gone on to great success, as you have yourself. And there was a lot of innovation and a, and a lot of pushback on the traditional ways of kind of marketing the promotion. I think it's fair to say that some of the things that you put in place, Mervyn, were clearly brand new and innovative, but are now things that we consider staples in the music business. Yeah, I um, made it my uh, my task to, if I was representing these labels, I wanted to go back to the source and spend time with the people who create these labels. So I spent two days with Puffy and I watched how he worked and, and why he worked and I questioned him. You know, why do you do that? How do you do this? You know, and, and likewise, I did the same with Dallas down in, you know, down in Atlanta, and I went and saw LA over in uh, at LaFace and, and talked about some of the artists that were coming through and their vision of them and how I thought we could do it. And I ended up coming back to London and thinking, wow, you know, all I keep getting is a block from the radio promotions department saying, yeah, this is good, but it won't get on Radio 1. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, well, is Radio 1 going to be the be-all and end-all of everything that we do? And there has to be another way. Now, what Puffy does, or what Puffy did in those days, was to to bypass radio by, you know, going back to the streets, going to the barbershops, going to the hairdressers, you know, going to the corners of, you know, and handing out mixtapes and flyers. And So I thought I'll start my own street team. And we were the first label in the UK to have a street team. And we had the best street team. They were just absolutely incredible and so much so that I think when when Puffy first came to London 
nobody really knew who he was. I picked him up in my car, in my BMW from the airport, <laughs> and I took him to, a, I took him to, I think there was a, a conference going on at the Islington Business Centre, and Puffy was one of the keynote speakers. And, and all the way we talked about, you know, what he did and what we were doing and, you know, and, and they helped us a lot. The, the the Bad Boy Street team helped us a lot in shaping what the Arista stroke, you know, BMG Street team was. And yeah, I do think we were innovative. I think we were, you know, heads and shoulders above everything else that was going on. But the most important thing is that we were creating a demand for our product without radio. And invariably, our records charted and then went on radio, as opposed to the other way around. Clearly, you were very, very successful during your time as head of artist repertoire at Arista. And that saw you make significant moves up the corporate ladder, earn yourself VP status along the way. Yeah, I mean, we were doing so well in the UK in terms of marketing black music that uh, I was asked to go um, and run international and help the European territories kind of model on what we were doing, you know, in terms of street teams, in terms of, you know, core marketing at street level. I spent, I think, a couple of couple of three years looking after R&B marketing in Europe before being made vice president of international marketing and then taking on the complete roster, not just the black music, but, you know, the Kings of Leon or, you know, the Foo Fighters in territories around around Europe. When you start out in, on your journey, did you ever see that as being a possibility for the, for the young Mervyn Lynn? You know, that there will be a time where VP status was possible, particularly given the optics around the business at the time. I never ever thought about being the vice president. And, and, and when I was, I never ever felt that I was better than anybody else, you know, because I was one. I don't think it was a goal. I never wanted to be president of a label. or whatever. I just really wanted to do what I was doing because I loved working with music and I loved, you know, I remember coming back to the UK company after running international and it was a completely different landscape, which was a bit of an eye-opener because I'd been working with, you know, some of the European territories that were a little bit behind in the, in the development of marketing music to consumers. And I came back and it pretty much was all around TV advertising. Everything was, okay, we're going to go on TV with this one, we're not on that one. And I said, whoa, hold on a minute, where is the marketing gone? Because when I left the company, it was kind of like actually – how can we get this to the widest audience possible? And there was a marketing budget attached to, to, you know, to completing that task. When I came back, it was all about TV advertising, which really it's a number crunchers game. It's not a creative marketers game. Before we get to where you are now, I'd really like to talk about the work that you've consistently done in the area of diversity and inclusion. And we know now that clearly it's very topical. All the labels are, you know, clearly aligned to, to to make a difference given the events that have transpired across the world recently. It's something that you've been a part of, not just now, but for many years previous. I know it's something that's dear to your heart, as it is for all of us. How different is the business now from when you first started? And did you face any challenges as a person of colour when you first you got your first break in a major label? If I did, I wasn't aware of uh, of it. I, I mean, I, I grew up in, in a place called Enfield where, you know, when we, when I went to school, I was probably one of only 10 black people in the school. So I've always been in, in an environment where I was in a minority. 
but it didn't phase me. I didn't walk into that room feeling any lesser person than anybody else. So even within a label, I never felt that actually I'm the only black person in this boardroom. I didn't ever feel like that. However, I was aware that, you know, we needed to get more black people within within the organisations. And, uh, and I thought that the entry level for black people was completely different to the entry level of their white counterparts. And it was something that um, that touched a nerve when when I was at Sony. I remember having lots of interns, some you know, some black interns, some white interns, doing I guess menial jobs. And one day I saw an email come through, you know, company wide email saying, "Has anybody got an intern that I could borrow to do a mail out?" And I just I just kind of fumed inside. And fortunately, I had a chairman that was very understanding. And I, and I went to the chairman. Jed Dirty and I said, Jed, have you seen this? And he said, what? And I said, look, it's ridiculous. You know, we're passing around these interns like we're passing around a mop or a broom. I said, are we really giving them an opportunity to learn? And fortunately, he turned around and said, Merv, fix it. And I went, okay. And to which after much, you know, um, deliberating and conversations with people, we started a, a, a thing called Music for Good, which was an opportunity to give less advantaged people the opportunity to work within a record company you know for, for nine months and for those nine months they would earn uh, you know an MVQ at the end of it uh, which was a which was something so they weren't being exploited they were having a transferable you know understanding that they understood how the business worked and what I did was every two weeks we brought in an industry expert like you know, Alan Edwards would come in and talk about publicity. So they'd get an idea of publicity. We'd get somebody in from royalties to explain how the royalty situation works within company. We'd bring in some a publisher. This is how publishing interacts with. So by the time the nine months is done, they'd probably have a better understanding of how the business works than some of the people that have been there two or three years who haven't gone through that process. So um, to answer to your question, I think it has changed a lot the younger cohorts of employees at most of these major uh, labels are certainly a lot more militant than I was. You know, I was the kind of person that was you know, very quietly trying to make a difference. Like you and me and Danny were, we were quietly trying to make a difference. This cohort are not quietly doing anything. Mm-hmm. And that's why we've come to where we've come to where, you know, organisations that have to say, well, actually, we have to do something because we've got, you know, the, the young people that work in our company that are almost militant to saying that we have to do something. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Tell us more about the other organisations that you've been working with in the area of diversity and inclusion. The first, I guess, was EJAG for the BPI, which is the Equalities and Justice Advisory Group. And that started just after the Oscar So White Again, because Jed Doherty, who was my chairman at Sony, he's now the chairman of the BPR, Jed had called me and he said, had you seen that? And I said, yes, I had seen that. And he said, you know, there's a concern that, that, that the Brits is not perceived in that manner. After much to and fro, he agreed to assemble a bunch of people to help change the paradigm. And one of the things that we first of all did was to, to look at the voting academy. Ultimately, it was kind of like, actually, if we're going to properly represent what is the best of British, then we have to have a proper representation of the people that nominate. So so we changed the voting academy to be more reflective of the audience in the UK, i.e. 
50% male, 50% female. I think we had 15 or 20% black Asian minority. And as a result, the following year, the nominations of the, uh, of the Brits was a, certainly a lot more representative and in keeping with that militant younger generation that I mentioned. So they were saying, well, all of a sudden it's like, wow, that's very, very representative. And then the following year, you've got Dave, uh, performing on stage at the Brits in a way that people uh, you know, only ever dreamed would happen. I also sit on the UK Diversity Task Force, which is um, UK Music, which is the governing trade body of all the music business, like the publishers, the small labels, the BPI. And within that UK um, Diversity Task Force, we've created the 10-point plan, a governance plan for the business to to make sure that diversity inclusion is part of their remit on a day-to-day level. And that is going to be kind of, I won't say police, but that is going to be administered on a, an ongoing basis to make sure that it's adhered to. And the final thing I do is I work with a very amazing, creative young man called Cephas Williams, who started 56 Black Men. He has a vision and quite rightly challenges the perception of Black people in the media through 56 Black Men he challenged the media to say, well, just because this person wears a hoodie, he's not what you think he is. You know, here's David Lammy. You know, this guy's a barrister. This guy's a doctor, you know, and you've got these very influential black people in hoodies. And it's kind of like, it's actually, you've got to look beyond that. And where is Mervyn Lynn in terms of the business now? Because I know you, you're you out there with another incredible company, but one that's your own. Yeah, so we, we started our company in 2012. Um, giving opportunities for, I wouldn't say labels, but giving the opportunity for brands to interact with consumers, thinking actually how can we utilise a mass of people that have something in common by using a message and a vehicle that is music and or sport or any other entertainment. And, and, and what we do, we kind of help them shape how that, how that evolution comes about. What are your remaining ambitions? I'd like to shoot under 15 on a round of golf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is why I'm not out with you right now. So, you know. <laughs> uh, I would like to see, I wouldn't say conclusion, but the ongoing development of investing in grassroots music based on the funds that these majors have given because of the George Floyd incident. I'd like to see that come to some kind of meaningful fruition. Ultimately, my dream is to wake up one morning and think, ah, a level playing field for everybody. And that's what I'd really like. And, and, and I guess I will argue to my dying breath until that is the day. So I'm outside the business. I'm doing stuff that influences and affects the business, but I'm not a, I'm not a driver. I'm an influencer. I think the drivers within the business, I'm waiting for them to to change it irrevocably. And over the years, who are the people that, who have provided you with inspiration or still provide you with inspiration now? Well, I remember coming through the ranks all those years ago, and I remember there was one person that I'd always call. Whenever I got a call to say, would I come and work X, Y, and Z, I, my first call would always 
be to Jeff Young <laughs> for, for some sort because Jeff was in the business you know Jeff's a, you know he's a very calmly spoken you know he gives you all the pros and cons so I'd always call Jeff and say look Jeff you know they've offered me this job what do you think and he'll go well this is happening and that's happening and da 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 so so he's always been an influence in, in that way yeah outside of music is my karate instructor for because he was my like my second dad I'm influenced by everybody in the business because everybody offers a certain degree of creativity or knowledge or whatever. And what's the proudest moment in your career to date? One was, I remember on the Alicia Keys record, the first record, um, I worked her silly. She worked so hard, that girl, for, for everything that she's got now. But we went on the road in Europe and she was, you know, she'd spend all night up on the piano writing in her room and do promo all day and TVs and radios and come come back to the hotel and be working. And as a consequence, the record was a smash. So on the second record, on the second record, uh, she said, I'm not going to be doing that promo run anymore. She said, you know, I've done it now. And I said, well, you know, you can't not do stuff because, you know, I remember seeing a poster, I think in your office at, at Ireland and saying, no, or something very strange happens if you do no promotion. Nothing. nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing that and I said, you know, you can't not do anything. And she said, she said, well, you figure out something then. And, and, and to me, that was a challenge. It's like, that's that I will need to, and that's the task. Alicia, we've got a new Alicia record. She doesn't want to do promo. She wants to do a press conference. How can I make that work for the European territories? That was my task. Unfortunately, my assistant at the time, or my old assistant at the time, was going out with David Lammy. So I remember speaking over dinner to David and saying, you know, um, you know, I'm working this Alicia record, da, 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 da. And David said, why don't we do the press conference in the House of Commons? And I went, oh, my goodness, you sure? He said, he said it will be a challenge, he said, because there's never, ever been any music in, the, in that house. He said, but it will get, you know, hopefully what we both want. And so we did. We we organised a press conference in the House of Commons, the first time ever an artist had played in the House. And there was a number of, you know, uh, journalists, not just music journalists, but tabloid journalists, um, broadsheet journalists, radio stations, all within this. That, I mean, it couldn't have got more packed from all over the world in this in this room in the House. I had Alicia sat at a piano three backing vocalists and she just sat there I wouldn't have done it with any other artist she was articulate enough she was calm enough she could come across in a way that actually wasn't you know you know obtuse and um and she came out and uh she started tinkling at the piano and she said first of all she said you know I know we're in this house he said but it's not you know this is not serious this is really not serious but you know and uh and then what she said, any questions and this woman stood up and she said, oh, hi, I'm such and such from BBC Radio 4. And did you realise there were quite a lot of people who were quite disturbed that there's actually a commercial operation happening within the house, that music was being played here for the very first time? And he just sat there and started pinging on the piano. Dingy, 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 dingy. <laughs> and, she, and she said, she said, I, she said, I really didn't realise that I created such a storm. She said, but I thought well, this was the place of power and this is the place that makes changes. 
and I'm all for change. Are you not for change? She said, I know something about that. <laughs> she started, and she started playing Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man. And it was just absolutely amazing. And that journalist sat down and everyone looked at her and she never made another word. And, it, and, and we made the six o'clock news. We made the 10 o'clock new news. We made MTV news, CNN. It was, and Alicia said to her, and she said, she said, I told you, I knew you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one. And the second one is, um, uh, as you know, I've got a very disabled daughter. And um, throughout all my time at, at uh, in the business, I remember going to lots of dinners and award shows and this. And, but the one thing that ever stuck out uh, with me was the Silver Clef Luncheon. Silver Clef Luncheon, which is in aid of Nord of Robbins. And Nord of Robbins is a, is a charity that helps people with, I guess, mental disorders in coming out of themselves, in communicating, um, using music. And it is the charity of choice for the business. And uh, I would always go to, and it was amazing because the people that support Nord of Robbins would be U2, would be Nile Rogers. And these people, you know, just come in and support him in a charity that really, really does make a difference. And um, I would always go. And every year I'd listen to a parent of, of a child who has, was going through music therapy because of some kind of ailment or whatever. And uh, it always would make me absolutely bore with tears. And I guess I would bore my eyes out for two reasons. One, because I knew about it and I didn't do it for my own daughter. And second of all, because, you know, because I wasn't able to communicate with my daughter. So I guess this, the, the proudest moment was being asked to be on the board of trustees of the Nord of Robins, uh, which is, you know, it, it, which really is quite amazing. It's something that I hope will be adopted by the, the new cohorts of, uh, of industry personnel as a, as a, a continue to be the charity of choice, because it really is, um, it really is a meaningful thing. When you see the work in action, it's unbelievably powerful and you understand what music can do. Last couple of questions, Mervyn. I mean, what does real racial diversity in the music industry look like to you? It's a level playing field without having to think about a level playing field. You know, it's about going to work every day, thinking that everybody's the same and has nothing to do with the colour of their skin or, you know, that they're male or female or they're gay or anything else. It's just actually, how good are you at your work? You know, let's take people for the quality of the work they do than what they look like or what they do in their private lives. And if you were talking to yourself now in 2021 in a room with the young Mervyn Lynn, what advice would you give him as he starts his journey? I don't think I would say do anything any different than bide your time. You know, your time will come. I wasn't one of those people that that shouted and screamed. I've never been a shouting and a screamer. I've seen people that get on very well shouting and screaming within the business. And I guess there's one way, there's one route where you can, you know, someone's very, you know, scared of, you know, what you may say or what you may do because you rant and rave. And there's other people who think, you know, actually that gets you nothing. I've got little or no respect for somebody rather than someone coming over to me and saying, actually, you know, maybe you should have done that or maybe you should have done. And I've always been the latter. I've, I'm not a ranter and a raver. Um, I think there was opportunities within the 
the development of executives within the business that you can go down one route or another. You can go down a ranting, raving room where everybody's scared of what you say and what you do. Um, or you can go where, you know, you're very inclusive. People respect you for what you are um, and they will go that extra mile. And I think if I was to look at myself back then, I'd say the route that you choose should be that one. And that's the one I did. And finally, the candle is nowhere near being burnt out for Mervyn Lynn, but what's left in terms of what, what the things that you want to see and want to achieve? I think I'm quite content now. I'm, I'm content to, you know, to step back and do all the charitable social things that I'm doing and less on trying to drive product or trying to drive music in another way. I think there's very 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 capable people you know that are coming up that are there now that can do all that i think what what i have to do is to make sure that the environment that they're in is an inclusive one is a fairer one mervyn lynn good friend md of strategic partnerships and as you have heard through this chat a true pioneer thank you for joining us on did you know it's been a pleasure my friend well, thank you very much for asking me again. I'm Adrian Sykes, and this was Did You Know Pioneers, a Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Mervyn for sharing his story. Our thanks as ever to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, Ella Ruby on the socials, and to Vega Brothers for our theme music. Also, thanks to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW and Evie, Ren, David and the team at WX. You'll soon be able to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know Pioneers podcast. Details coming very soon. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode where we talk with former Sony Music UK VP of Business Affairs and now founding director of legal consultancy All Our Business, Dej Mahoney, about his career in the music business. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until the next time.